0: Hello. All right. So, welcome everybody. And uh, this is a the hardest time to speak in a conference is right after lunch when everybody's sleepy, and especially on a topic like this uh, that uh, some people would say is boring. Uh, I don't think it's boring, but uh, so my name is Jeff Lehman, and I am a family doctor. Uh, my background and why I'm doing this talk is um, so I, after a residency, uh, my wife and I. Uh, Went to India and we lived in India for 10 years and worked in a small rural mission hospital in India. Uh, And then I came back to the United States uh, and have been involved with resident education. So I'm a family medicine residency program director uh, here and have been involved with this conference for about 20 years. But the reason why uh, I proposed doing this talk this year was that as a young, uh, uh, so I'm not a cancer specialist, I'm not an epidemiologist. But as a primary care physician, I'm very, very involved with cancer screening. Uh, And cancer screening is really important to me uh, because I've had family members have cancer and die of cancer. And and I think most of us in this room probably have had some exposure or impact of of someone we love uh, being involved with cancer. And so as a young uh, medical missionary, you know, I went to India uh, with this passion of, uh, of helping Uh, And part of that helping was uh, seeing the devastation of cancer on patients in rural and poor parts of India. You thought, like, wow, man, maybe we need to be doing some kind of cancer screening here. And so my mentality was, well, I knew how to do cancer screening in the United States. How do I take that cancer screening uh, mentality and apply it to a lower-middle-income country? And that was met with absolute disaster, uh, as it is most times when we try to export public health strategies like cancer screening is one example, uh, to a very different country where those strategies were not formed uh, at. So we're going to talk about that together a little bit. We're going to be talking about screening, and even though this is a clinical talk, I know there's even high school students in the room. Uh, I think, uh, don't be scared away by some of the big words on the slides. We will not dumb down, because you're not dumb, Uh, But we will bring back into a very understandable context for even those people in the room who who have not had gone through medical school yet or nursing school. One thing that I want to be really careful about is that uh, as we talk about cancer screening, uh, you know, I have had a passion about this topic for a long time and I remember as a resident, a family medicine resident in Oklahoma City, giving a very, 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 very early precursor to this talk at a medical grand rounds at our hospital in Oklahoma City, uh, and was stopped by a very senior statesman physician and the medical staff who stood up trembling, crying, yelling at me uh, that his life had been saved uh, by a PSA or prostate cancer screening test, uh, and that how dare I disparage this or discourage anybody from getting a PSA test. And so I, I realized that people's personal experiences Uh, greatly color how they, so I just want to be careful uh, uh, that I am sensitive to that, and hopefully that sensitivity is uh, conveyed through this uh, time today. And if it's not, um, uh, I apologize, and it's not my intent to inflame anybody here. But the problem is we all know that cancer is a devastating uh, problem, right? In In the world every year, as best as we can tell, there are about 11 million deaths from cancer in the world every year. So to put that in context, that's all of Kentucky and all of Tennessee every year dying of cancer in the world. Um, And then the other part of that is, add on top of that, then another 19 million cases of new cancer. Uh, It's it's a big problem, and I think we're all aware of that. So what's the point of us talking today? So I'm sorry, taking my glasses off and on because these lights are almost blinding, and I can't tell whether they're better with glasses or not. But today we're just going to talk about cancer screening in general. And this is important for every layperson in the country to know. You know, I'm a big football fan, and so very soon coming up, I don't remember what month it happens, but the NFL players will all be wearing that bright pink color, uh, advocating for breast cancer screening, and, and cancer screening is a part of everything. So we're going to talk about pros of cancer screening, which I would assume everybody would understand that there are pros for screening for cancer. But we're going to also talk about cons of cancer screening, and that concept is very surprising to people, and that's kind of one of the big takeaway messages when you leave here, that it's complicated. And so, and then we're going to talk about what makes for good screening tests, and then we're going to think about what are those big cancers that are out there in the developing world in these countries where we're thinking about going, and maybe some strategies of how we can address that in the global context, so that will be the second half of the talk. And then we're going to think about some cutting-edge solutions for looking for cancer in the future. So uh, we will start off with a question, a test question for you. And that question is, early detection of cancer is a good thing. So how many people in this room, by the raise of hands, would agree with that statement? Okay. How many disagree? Now, we never have anybody disagree. How many people say, ah, it depends? Wow, more than we normally have. Okay, so um, for all of you who agreed, you're in good company. Uh, Journal of the American Medical Association uh, just about 20 years ago, and, and actually have not redone this study, uh, but they did a huge survey of several hundred thousand patients, and they asked them a very similar question to what I just asked you. And 87% of the people that they asked said that routine cancer screening is almost always a good idea. So 9 out of 10 almost. 75% that early detection of cancer saves people's lives. Okay, that's 3 out of 4. So all of you who said yes, you're, in, you're in, uh, very in sync with everybody else. And as a result, when they were asking these people, 80% of the people who responded said in a little scenario presented to them that if an 80-year-old person who declined screening was irresponsible. Okay? And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, positive feelings toward cancer screening of any kind. So um, it's going to get a little bit technical here biomedically, but uh, just go with your gut. And so this is a 55-year-old patient. He comes to see me in my office, or pretend, just put on your pretend hat today, uh, that you're you're advising a family member uh, or a patient about cancer. And uh, this cancer has heard on the news about this certain cancer screening for Cancer X, okay? And and this patient has read uh, that actually for his age group that the five-year survival rate uh, without cancer screening, is only 69%. Means from the time a patient shows up with symptoms until they die of cancer, that's the survival rate. Uh, that if you don't do screening, the, only the, the five-year survival rate once they detect cancer is 69%. But with this certain cancer screening test, uh, the five-year survival rate goes to 99%. Okay, so that means from the time now, not from the time they show up with symptoms. But for the time you do the tests and find the cancer until they die, the five-year survival rate is now 99. So, we want to ask: Would you recommend this to your patient, family member, uh, colleague? What do you think? How many of you think this is a great test and you'd recommend this to your family? Well, oh, not many people actually. Okay. The real question is: Does this test save people's lives? What do you think? Yeah. There's yeah, not. But what is your probability of having a positive screening without actually having the cancer? You know what I mean. You need more data. Sure. So, but we're actually finding out real that we're diagnosing real cancers here. So the point is, is whether either you're either finding it when they show up with symptoms from that cancer, or you're finding it from the screening test. Uh, One way or another, you're finding a real cancer, and you're improving the five-year survival rate. The question is, does that save people's lives? Yeah. However, the quality of life for those who are yep. not, um, worrying and worrying about it. Yeah. So actually, the answer is that I'll save uh, the pain and agony of me dragging this on. But all of you have said good things. Is it does not save lives necessarily, and so that's just one big concept I want to get into people's lives, uh, minds, and we'll simplify this here in a minute. So this is another cancer, not cancer X now, cancer B, and your dad uh, or your your uncle reads about this in a journal. Uh, you know, uh, the AARP journal, maybe. And, uh, and, they, and they read about this test, and they say, you know what, I read the mortality rate, the chances of dying from cancer B over five years without screening is two people die out of every 1,000 people. Uh, but the mortality with a screening test, if I do this X test uh, to detect cancer B, that only 1.6 people die out of 1,000 And so we're going to ask you to do some complicated math here. How many people's lives will be saved for every 1,000 people? Two minus 1.6 equals 0.4, right? So you're going to save 0.4 lives out of every 1,000 people. So are you impressed? Uh, Does this test save lives? Yeah, it does. It saves one-half of a person's life, or if you double the denominator, it saves one person's life for every 2,000 people you screen. Good bang for your buck or bad? Bad, okay. So just remember your answer there. Uh, And would you recommend this screening test to your uncle? Uh, I don't see a lot of enthusiasm. But here's the better question. Which one of those two screening tests is better? The 30% in five-year survival or the 0.4% reduction in mortality? What do you think? Who thinks the first one's better? Okay. It doesn't matter if you're wrong. There's no, no one watching or videoing you. Uh, and how many think the second one's better? There's a lot of people who didn't vote here, the, the, the fence-sitters. Okay. So Actually, I will tell you that the second test is better because it saves lives. The first test we just don't know, and we're going to tell you why that is for a second. I'm going to take one step back, and a couple of you have already made really interesting comments that we're going to flesh out a little bit. Can cancer screening actually hurt you? I see somebody nodding their head. How in the world could you imagine that doing something as benign as screening for cancer could ever hurt somebody? yeah so there could be a false positive test but how would that hurt you yeah so there would be the worry like you get told oh you have cancer and you don't really so there's the, the anxiety and worry yeah so let's say the test is a false positive and it leads to other tests and maybe invasive procedures like biopsies some other tests are just generally invasive yeah or radiation uh, if it's a, a radiation test or uh, an invasive test of some kind. Yeah. Yep. And so your, your attention is diverted from things that are more important, perhaps. So, yes, you guys all got the right answer. Cancer screening can hurt you. And not all cancer screening tests are equal. And I think in our mind when we hear uh, colonoscopy mammogram, pap smear, those are the big ones that we do for screening here, that they all are equal and they are not equal. I'll tell you that pap pap smears and colonoscopies are far superior to things like mammograms uh, in their effectiveness to screen for cancer. An improvement in five-year survival is not enough and I'll explain to you why in a second. And you guys already got the right answer here. Uh, for the, the yes, it can hurt, and how, how it could hurt potentially. And we'll look at some other things here in a second. So here's a chart. Uh, I don't, you probably can't see the print uh, on here. Uh, but these are four kinds of cancer, okay? And so the bottom level, and these are all real. I mean, this is real. Uh, so the bottom line there are uh, cancer disease that you may have and you would never detect in your life. You would never get symptoms. And, you know, your cells are always becoming uh, funky and your body's policing for that and fighting that off and finding those aberrant cells and your immune system fights them. But every once in a while, some of us will develop malignancies of some kind and you will never know you had it and never affect you and you'll die never knowing that it was part of your body. And that's actually real. We know that from cadaver studies. Um, The second thing there are asymptomatic cancers, Uh, So, again, they don't cause you any symptoms. So anything blue or green there, there's no symptoms. You would never, never know you had it. Uh, But the green there are cancers that you could actually pick up if you screened for them. Okay? So if you did some kind of test, you'd find out you had them. But once you found out you have it, if you just didn't do anything, it would never affect you, and you would die with it. And this is true. Uh, There there was a study in in Europe a couple years ago of about 60,000 cadavers they looked at. And over 60% of the men in that study actually had asymptomatic prostate cancer. They died from heart attacks, strokes, something else. They never, ever had any kind of symptomatic prostate disease. So that's green. The next is the cancers that are symptomatic, that are, that are prob- potentially curable. This is most of what we think about when we think about cancer, right? And so this is that breast slump or an abnormal pap smear uh, that you can actually cure, and so we can find them, and they will cause symptoms if they, if they live long enough, right? And then the last stage or the types of cancers that we're talking about are metastatic cancers that are not curable. That's the guy who shows up with metastasis to the liver and to the brain, uh, and, um, and that there's nothing that you can do for those patients, okay? Now, increasingly, we are getting better and better at palliative care. So for those of you who are not gone through medical school, Now, we think about cancer treatment in two categories. We think about curing cancer, but we also think about palliating cancer or keeping it at bay and keeping a patient's symptoms controlled for a while, but with no real hope of cure. So across the top of this graph are those little arrows. Those are the intervals we screen. So maybe this is every two-year mammograms. Maybe this is every 10-year colonoscopies, one-year PSA tests. Uh, That's the intervals with which we do cancer screening. Okay, so now we're going to apply this. So tumor A, we've kind of already talked about. That's the tumor that you get uh, that would never be detectable and you would never have symptoms for. So probably not worth screening for that. The next kind of cancer is uh, that red dot, the red star recognizes, we picked up a cancer with a screening test. But we kind of already talked about this kind of cancer, that you would die with it and never know you had it. And so whether there's any benefit in finding that kind of cancer and so that's what we call overdiagnosis, right? When we're picking up things uh, that would never affect a patient, and then we're doing things to that patient to cure that cancer that would never would have affected them to start with. That's called overdiagnosis, okay? The next kind of cancer is the kind that we really like screening for, right? So this is the kind we pick up before there are symptoms, uh, but if we didn't pick it up and treat it, it would eventually progress to a time in a person's life where it would spread metastatically. Uh, and that patient would die from that. So this is, the, this is what we're after here. Um, and and then, uh, then these are the unfortunate kinds of cancers. And so this is the kind of uh, cancer that is just heartbreaking for us as clinicians uh, or nurses or people who interact with patients. This is that patient who gets their colonoscopy. They're told, clean bill of health. We didn't see a polyp in your colon. We didn't see anything. And then five or six years later, they show up with, colon cancer metastasis to their liver or wherever, and, and that happened in between the screening interval, and those are just really aggressive, and there's nothing that we can do for those. And so we can't really screen for those, and we call those interval cancers. So, But this is what we're talking about today, okay? Now, I'm going to ask you stay with me here because the next two slides talk about kind of complicated statistical things, and I don't care if you remember what I'm talking about, but I want you to understand the concept because there are two really important biases. Everyone knows what a bias is. Uh, And so we all know what a bias is from the culture we live in. We talk about racial bias and socioeconomic bias. But here we're talking about statistical biases. And one of those is called a length time bias. And so these are three different tumors or cancers. And the top where it's yellow up there, those are really aggressive cancers, the ones that grow fast and spread fast. The ones at the bottom are those really slow growing tumors that just take forever to, to mature and to spread. Uh, and so the onset of tumor, we start there in the bottom line of that graph is time. And then how long until you detect it? Well, the aggressive ones, you're going to have a shorter time before you detect it, and the slower-growing ones. And then how long in, that's until you could t- check it on a test, and then how long until you get symptoms. And so if at any one time you did a screening test, Uh, A length-time bias means that you're way more likely to pick up tumors that are slow-growing and you're less likely to pick up the aggressive ones at any one length of time because of length-time bias. And so any screening test is going to be more biased towards picking up cancers that are less significant uh, than more significant because of length-time bias. But there's another thing called lead time bias. Again, I don't care if you remember these names, but just to know in your mind, hey, I remember some crazy guy talking to me about these biases that affect cancer screening. So that's what we're after. So the top here, we have two groups. We have the group we're going to screen for cancer on the top, and on the bottom, we have uh, the control group that we're not screening for. So the control group, they're going to all of a sudden, you know, they have maybe some, uh, some, uh, oh, getting, having a shower in the morning. Oh, I feel a lump in my breast, right? And so then they go to the doctor. That was the symptoms that they felt, that they felt the lump. Uh, and then they go and they get diagnostic testing done, and a diagnosis at some point is confirmed. Yes, you do have cancer. And then at some point in the future, just imagine with me that that patient would die uh, potentially untreated from that cancer. So the time between when the diagnosis happens and they would die of cancer, we've already talked about this, this is the survival time, Right? So now go to our screening group. So this is when we do a screening test. We'll do a mammogram, and we find this cancer uh, with a mammogram. And so we say, okay, now our diagnosis, you can see, is way earlier here. Uh, And then eventually that patient will die in the future. Well, the time between the test and the survival time uh, is the survival time. And so this is called the lead time, the differences between these two groups. And so my question for you is, is if the patient dies at the same time in both groups because of our inability to treat this kind of cancer, we've increased their survival time, but we've not really increased how long they live. right? And so that's part of the other bias. This is called lead time bias. So it doesn't really matter whether the patient dies from it or not. So one last example of this, and then I promise I'll move on and, and kill you out of your boredom. Uh, but without screening, let's say that this really bad kind of cancer, there's a 1,000 people who have this really bad progressive cancer, and five years later, unbelievable, 60% of these people are dead. Okay? And so that means this five year survival rate, it's just simple math, uh, that the survival rate is 40%. Okay, this is without any kind of screening. But now we have this screening test and we can find all this cancer. But remember, because of these biases, we're going to pick up cancers that are slow growing and are not going to be a problem. And so now with our great screening test, we not only find that 1,000 people with that really bad cancer, But we also find 2,000 people who have a more slow-growing, indolent cancer. And then we follow them five years later. Well, those 2,000 people on the top are still alive. The same percentage of people died from the progressive cancer. And now what's our five-year survival rate? It's 80%. And so we haven't really changed anything. We just picked up a bunch of extra tumors that didn't do anything. And that's why when you hear about a test... You just type into Google, and you don't even have to be a doctor or a nurse to do this. Type into Google: Does mammograms uh, improve mortality rates? Right. So, what my goal, my takeaway message for this is: uh, we do not want to rely on survival rates to help us tell whether a cancer screening test is is helpful or not. We want to know whether it reduces deaths. Okay. Uh, so mortality rates. You guys have all mentioned false positives. And we just answered this question. If five-year survival rate is not enough, then what a good screening test should be doing. It should be showing in randomized, controlled trials uh, to reduce mortality. So if you were going to invent, you guys all have some power now, and we have these bright students on these biomedical tracks in high school. And if you guys are given unlimited funding, and you're going to find the very best screening test, you're going to change the world from cancer screening, and we're going to design the most perfect screening test. Let's think together about what a screening test like that would be like. What do you think? Just shout it out. Cheap. That's really important, right? If you can find all these cancers, but it costs $5 million to do each one, that's probably not going to be uh, able to be rolled out on a widespread basis. So it needs to be very sensitive, right? So if you have any kind of stats, you know the difference between sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity means you're not going to miss anything, and it's accurate. So another word for that might be specific. So right, so specificity means we're not, you know, sensitivity is we're not going to miss anything. Specificity means we're not going to overcall things, right? So we want to test to be sensitive and specific. Usually for us in medicine, that's a teeter totter. We have tests that are very sensitive, but that are not very specific. But boy, if we were designing our own and we had unlimited funds, we'd love to do both. So cheap, sensitive, and specific. Together, those sensitive and specificity have to do with accuracy. non invasive. invasive. Awesome, right? You don't have to be sticking needles in people. What else? Dream with me here. Efficient, Yeah, so, yeah, it's efficient, man. You could do it out in a village. Uh, you could do it in five minutes. It wouldn't take, you know... Uh, a, a week or five days to process the test? Painless. Painless, right? Even non-invasive things can be painful, as my wife reminds me uh, every year when she goes for certain screening tests. Yeah? Simple to read. Yeah, simple to read. So we're going to talk a little bit later about cervical cancer. You know, how do we detect cervical cancer in the United States? Pap smears. What do you need to do a pap smear? Yeah, You need a pathologist, right? Uh, how many countries out in the villages have pathologists? So it needs to be easy to read. Some of it you don't have to maybe even have a specialist read for you. So uh, uh, one that we can get really easy results with, and that would be the same for a mammogram. You need a radiologist to read that. Right, so easy uh, easy to come up with an answer. What else? You guys are doing awesome. We're almost there. Some? Yeah. Yeah, can this be rolled out on a huge basis, right? Uh, is the technology there to roll this out on, a, on, on massive scale? And, I, you know, I think about TB screening, uh, you know, is a, another big passion of mine uh, from my time in India. You know, you can have TB, but you do, initially you need to have these big TB labs to do TB cultures, and now we have these amazing tests that we can do at point of care out in a village with no electricity. It's amazing. Yeah, so can this be rolled out on a big basis? Very good. So, we're going to find this cancer with great specificity and it's cheap and we're not going to hurt anyone. We're going to find these tumors. We better be able to treat them. Otherwise, we've probably done more harm than good, right? If we find a cancer, I'm sorry, Bob, you have cancer. Uh, well, there's nothing to do about it, but it's good news we found it. It didn't cost you very much money, uh, so that we don't want that either, right? We want to be able to do something about the cancers we find. You guys are doing great. Yeah, so I think mostly those are the things, right? So we, it needs to be cheap, accurate. It needs to be painless if possible. It needs to be rolled out on a wide-scale basis. And I want you to keep that thought in your mind as we think about things like colonoscopies and mammograms in the developing world and who has access to them. Uh, and then we have to be able to, 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 to treat them. So one example I'm going to use here, and I get in trouble here, uh, but I'm going to use prostate cancer as an example of prostate cancer screening uh, just to by disclaimer uh, I do order uh, prostate cancer screening tests on my patients uh, occasionally after we've talked about it together uh, but when you look at the U.S. Preventative Task Force guidelines um, they say that between the age of 50 and 59, 69 that it's not recommended for everybody but if a, if a physician or a clinician talks to their patient maybe you'll decide to order a PSA test that's how we screen for prostate cancer but that anybody over 70, you should not be ordering PSA tests on them uh, because, in their argument is, it causes more harm than good. Again, there's that concept I want you to walk out of here with, that cancer screening can harm people. So why in the world would prostate cancer screening, how could it harm anybody? So here's, this is from a really big study that was done in Europe. And so this is for every 1,055 people, all those little gray people on there, you did a PSA test on to screen for prostate cancer. Well, actually, of all of that 1,055, 100 to 120 of them, it's going to be a false positive. Like the test is high, but then when you do biopsies or you do an MRI of the prostate, you realize, oh, they don't have cancer. Sorry. Do you think that that's a big deal? I see some heads nodding. We're going to talk. It's a huge deal when it comes to breast cancer. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. But it is tier two. Of that 1,000, we're going to actually find 110 prostate cancers. Okay, that's good, right? Right? But 60 of those people, we're going to do biopsies on or prostatectomies on, and they will have actually a complication from our treatment. And, you know, maybe it's impotence, maybe it's infection, maybe it's urinary incontinence um, or death. And four to five of these people would die, right? And except if we're screening, we're going to save one life. So that's, that's how good prostate cancer screening is. For every 1,055 people we screen, we save approximately one life. So it's not very overwhelming. This is actually a little bit better than the test that none of you guys were enthusiastic about at the beginning, Cancer B. right? It saves only one life for every 2,000 people. Uh, this test saves about one life for every 1,000 people. And so, But this is widespread screening in the United States that everybody is agreeing that we should do. Now, I think that we should do them, but I think it should be with nuance. and We'll talk about that. What about breast cancer screening? So for every 1,000 women that you do a mammogram on over the age of 50, which is uh, everyone agrees we should be doing that, somewhere, depending on what study you look at, between 490 and 670, will have at least one false alarm. And what we mean by that is, oh, there might be something there. We maybe need to do an ultrasound, maybe another breast can- imaging, maybe MRI breast or something else. And they're told... And yet what we know about that is that when you tell a woman, and there actually have been studies looking at the psychological impact of this on people, when you tell somebody, oh, there's, there's something abnormal on your mammogram, we need to get you scheduled in two weeks for a breast ultrasound, uh, and then you know, maybe a biopsy another week after that, and then you have to wait four or five days for the pathology report to come back, great news, this wasn't cancer. And so the doctor's thinking, oh, they're fine. Actually, when you look at those patients who are in that setting, and you look at them five and ten years later, the amount of anxiety uh, that they have generally about everything, including their own health care, is higher than women who have not gone through that experience. And their overall view of themselves as a healthy person has gone down considerably. And so there's just this constant fear in their mind, like everything that they feel, then there's this heightened sensitivity, there's something might be wrong with me medically. And so that's not a small thing, Right. Now, obviously, that's better than dying from breast cancer, so I'm not going to overstate the anxiety, but it's real. And so of every 1,000 women screened, uh, 3 to 14, uh, depending on the study, will be overdiagnosed and will have a surgical procedure. And we will avoid around 0.3 to 2.2 cancer deaths for every 1,000 people screened. So uh, none of you guys were enthusiastic about screening for Cancer B, but Cancer B was actually breast cancer. Right. And so uh, just think when we think about doing breast cancer screening, this is what we're hoping is somewhere between 0.3 and two point two women for every thousand that we're going to avoid a cancer death. Now, that's really important. Right. Uh, and, and I just want to also to think about scale. Lots and lots of people aren't going to have cancer. So a lot of cancer screening tests aren't a whole lot better than this. Uh, but just to be realistic. And then we talked about financial and psychological costs. So we've talked about this, downsides to screening. There's harm to individuals being labeled. You're sick. Uh, Overdiagnosis can lead to overtreatment. Now you think about, put on your different hat, take off your hats, and now uh, you have been made the health minister of a country. And you have so much money to spend on the health of this country, right? And so if some guy over in this uh, district starts doing uh, some kind of screening for cancer, and starts finding a bunch of asymptomatic cancers that you then have to treat because you have, you know, uh, uh, social uh, healthcare uh, resources are going to be shifted from things like clean water, education about breastfeeding, vaccination programs. I mean, you only have so many dollars to spend on healthcare, uh, so overdiagnosis can lead to overtreatment and resources being shifted away from those who need it. And it can affect your whole health system physically. And it can draw important things away even from socioeconomic causes like health. So getting people to stop smoking, uh, fighting obesity, those other things. uh, Maybe your dollars would be better spent on that. In medicine, we have this funny thing, and you probably have never seen this before if you haven't gone through nursing or medical school, but there's this thing called QALY. That's Quality Adjusted Life Year. So that's every year that you have a high quality of life from not having a disease. And this is the way that's Public health experts look at medicine. Mostly in medicine, we think about if we can spend $100,000 to give a person one quality adjusted life year of health, that that's a good cause. Anything over that uh, is not a very good use of money. And you can see here for prostate cancer, it's about $228,000 per quality adjusted life year. So you're spending a lot of money uh, on that. Uh, We won't do that. Last thing I'll just say to any clinicians in the room, Uh, nurses or doctors uh, or people who work with patients. So we're supposed to be talking to our patients before we order this test. This is from a study that was done in the Annals of Family Medicine and said, how many of you doctors are ordering PSAs on people? We either don't discuss it or recommend. That's the top. We discuss it and recommend against it. We discuss and let the patient decide. You can see that's the one that was the most popular. We discuss and recommend screening, like, I think you should do this. That wears a lot of weight. But the, the graph on this, the, the bar on this chart that alarms me is that 24% of doctors said they screen with never talking to the patient about They just added it into all their other blood tests. Uh, to me, that's actually criminal, right, because there are harms in screening. And if we haven't let that patient say, yes, I accept those harms because I want the benefits, uh, that's a problem. So we don't want to be doing this, uh, biasing people toward this. We want to just be having discussions with people. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because they want to do a wellness test. It's considered a wellness test. No, but why Cologuard? They're not getting the same thing for fit testing. I don't know. We've actually just gotten a new test recently. It's a blood one. But they've cancer society that's what the breath like yeah. can There's Cologuard, A1C, diabetic acrobatinopathy. Yeah. There's different steps. You know, if you win sure. each one of those, you get wellness rates on those. But and I think generally as a principal, doctors should be paid for higher cancer screening rates. Oops, that's my son. I better turn that off. Um, uh, cancer screening rates, but Cologuard itself is a very, very expensive test. Uh, we won't get into Cologuard, but um, uh, well, there's a lot of money from the company that owns Cologuard. It's $600 for every test. So, uh, so screening, uh, it's, when we think about screening here, I don't want you to think about people who show up with symptoms. I should have said this at the beginning. Screening are asymptomatic people with average risk. That's who we're talking about when we're screening. And so if you've learned something about screening, don't that's not forever all be on your mind. What I learned about prostate cancer screening five years ago was bad. It's much better now because urologists are willing to wait a little bit and be less aggressive at treating prostate cancer. So actually prostate cancer is becoming more favorable because we're not rushing to treat and hurt people. and because it's constantly changing and the incidence and, and types of cancer And this is why it's really important, if you learned all about cancer screening, your thoughts about cancer screening in in the United States or in Canada, and then you're going to the low- and middle-income countries, uh, this is why you should just be leaving all that there and be thinking differently about cancer screening in the developing world. Right? Because there's ability to screen, and then there's the should we screen. Right? And so uh, we have a ton of ability to screen for cancer, and maybe early detection can be good, but there are harms. And so we have to think about that in every single context we're going to be, because every context, based on the socioeconomic factors for patients, what other diseases are there, all that has to come into play. So this little chart you can't read, but I'll tell you what it is. The top are deaths from cancer, or number of cases of cancer in the in the world, and the bottom are deaths from cancer. So maybe it's even better if you can't read that. Can you read that? The, the, the biggest cases and deaths from cancer, can anybody guess what that is or read it if you can squint really hard? Breast cancer. breast cancer. So that's the number one cause of incidence and mortality of cancer in the world is breast cancer. What's number two? Cervical cancer. Number three? Oral cancer. How many of you ever thought about screening for oral cancer in your patients or people, your loved ones or whatever? Yeah, well, thankfully there's... Yes. Yep, very good. And then we think about stomach cancer, which we don't see a ton of in the United States relative to the developing world, colorectal, pharyngeal, then we get into things that we know more about. When we look at this, and yet red is women and blue is men, that's why there's no blue on cervical and breast, right? You don't have to be a, any kind of student to know that. Okay, so this is the impact of screening in the world, and you can see here orange Uh, is breast cancer. This is where breast cancer in the world kills the most people. It's the leading cause of death. Uh, But you can see yellow are cancers where the leading cause of death is cervical cancer. And you can see almost all of sub-Saharan Africa uh, and West Africa. Uh, And then you think about lung cancer, more of a developing world problem. And you can see China, United States, Australia there with blue lung cancer. And surprisingly enough, uh, countries like Tunisia and in Spain, colorectal cancer is the leading cause of death there. So now we're going to shift all of that thinking about cancer to the global health context. And we're going to think about what is the only, you know, the World Health Organization only recommends screening for one kind of cancer. Despite everything we just saw, the WHO says, you know what, there's only one recommendation that we have for screening. What do you think it is? Cervical cancer. That's right. So um, of all of the people in the world who die every year, last year was 340,000 people died in the world of cervical cancer. That's very hard to believe, right, because we catch it early most of the time in the United States. Ninety-one percent of those deaths are in low- and middle-income countries. So this is a developing world-impact cancer. Not that tons of people are getting it here, but we're treating it and catching it early. Uh, It's the only cancer screening recommended by the WHO And surprisingly enough, it's not pap smears. Why do you think it's not pap smears? Yeah, you have to be able to collect it. You have to be able to transport it to a lab. You need a pathologist to read it. It's a much more laborious. It makes sense for us here, given our health infrastructure here, but it makes no sense in any other developing country. And so the way that's recommended to screen for cervical cancer in the developing world, does anyone know the answer to this? So HPV typing is not the number one ray, but it's coming, right? You all know this, that if we gave everybody in the world HPV vaccines, we wouldn't have to screen for cervical cancer because there would be no cervical cancer because the only cause of cervical cancer, except for like less than 1% of all cancers, is HPV HPV infections, right? So if we could vaccinate everybody for HPV vaccine, give everybody an HPV vaccine, we wouldn't even be talking about this. But the way to treat it is to put vinegar on the cervix and look at it with a naked eye, right? And and you can see white changes on the cervix called aceto white changes. And actually, in many countries, there have been health programs where we've taught uh, people, even uneducated village health workers, to be able to identify those white changes on the cervix when you put vinegar on there. Uh, and and that's found. And then you can do biopsies and other things. So we're talking just about screening. And how, how expensive do you think vinegar is? Yeah, so we're talking about something that costs almost nothing. Uh, And then usually treatment is either possible either with heat, thermal ablation, uh, or LEAP, or cryotherapy. Uh, But in the world, the most common is thermal ablation. And listen to this. This is a study of Tamil Nadu, a state in southern India. And what they did was one round of screening. So we're not even talking about screening women every year. We're just talking about one time in their life having a look. You reduced mortality Remember, we were talking about for cancer B, 0.4%. With this study, just looking at everyone's cervix with vinegar, they reduced mortality by 35% for almost no cost, right? And so, another, other studies have even shown reduction of mortality uh, with doing this by 50%. So, wow, that's the biggest cancer in the world, and we can make a huge impact by doing just vinegar on the cervix and looking with the speculum. You wash the speculum, you sterilize it. There's no other expendables other than a Q-tip. Very, very cheap. So what was the second biggest cause of cancer mortality in the world? Or the first, actually? Breast. So what do you think about breast cancer screening globally? How would you do that? No one's going to have access to mammograms. Yeah, so self-breast exams. So there's actually never been a study showing that doing self-breast exams increases any kind of mortality benefit from cancer. Uh, And so I know lots of people recommend it. I'm not gonna debate that here, uh, but there's never been a study that teaching women to do self breast exams has any impact on mortality rates from breast cancer. Do they find a lump? Yes. In the long run over the whole scheme of things, does it actually save lives? Uh, It has not been shown that. And so uh, it's not recommended for widespread screening our mammography is not recommended in widespread screening due to costs. We're going to talk about some other options coming in the future, so that's really good. So we talk about oral cancer. Uh, I have never in my medical training been taught to screen for oral cancer, uh, but it's very easy to treat. In a lot of countries of the world, people chew tobacco or betel nut or other things uh, that cause oral cancer. Smoking causes oral cancer. So this is from uh, 13 Panchayats. Remember the talk we were just in at 8 o'clock this morning, if you were there? He talked about country, state, district, and then he couldn't remember the the next word. That was panchayat. Uh, And so these panchayat levels, like a village council level. So they looked at 13 of these, and they actually did half of them. They did uh, usual care. The other half, they trained uh, workers to go and look in people's mouths. And over these years, uh, for almost 20 years, they did this, And at three-year intervals, uh, they looked in people's mouth over age, and they found a 35% decrease in mortality rate among people who smoked or used alcohol or tobacco. And so that's really cheap to do, just look in someone's mouth. Uh, So uh, that's not been recommended by the WHO yet, but they still think it's a really important thing. So last year, the WHO came out with some screening recommendations. Uh, I don't want to bore you to death but they should respond to recognized need, not just whatever you're interested in, but what the need of your community is. Whatever the population that you're gonna treat should be defined before you start. You should have scientific evidence, and what we're talking about here, randomized controlled trial evidence of reduced mortality, uh, that it works. And you should be able to educate people doing this so that the doctors and the nurses and the community health workers know what they're doing. You should be able to do quality assurance for that. You should be informed choice, there should be equity. And this is where I want to pause for a second here because in India, where I, my most of my experience is, very rich people get all the same tests that people get here. They get colonoscopies, and they get mammograms, and more even. Um, but whatever you do has to be equitable in a country, and you, know, you should be able to roll it out for the poorest man in the country, and it should be accessible for the most wealthy as well. And over, this is their last line. Overall benefits of screening should outweigh harm. So this is part of the WHO. Everyone recognizes now in this room, and the WHO knows as well, we'll let them in on the secret, that screening can harm people. And so uh, that's one of the takeaway messages from this. Uh, For those of you who are clinicians in the audience who have some public health interests, this is a really cool website that you kind of get geeky on from the WHO where they collect data from every country on different cancer screening statistics, and you can see which ones are good and which ones aren't. So as we finish here today, we're gonna to think about cancer screening in the future. So cancer screening that all these bright high school students are gonna be involved in when they invent some of these technologies for us. Uh, and one is that I'm really hopeful for is artificial intelligence, right? And so we actually know, I hope there's no radiologists in the room, but artificial intelligence computer programs are actually better at reading most radiographic images than radiologists are. Now we still need radiologists because there are subtle things that we need them to look at. But overall, screening through massive numbers of chest CTs or MRIs or chest radiographs, AI is better uh, overall. And so I'll just tell you one way that we're using artificial intelligence in our clinic. I I work in an inner city, uh, uh, rural poor, all of my patients either are public aid patients or don't have insurance, and very high rates of diabetes and diabetic retinopathy, you know, how the diabetes affects the back of the eye. So normally they would have to go to an ophthalmologist's office. Well, in our city where the ophthalmologists live is way out in the rich part of town, and they have to take two buses to get there, and they're very intimidated to go out there, and you know it's a very fancy, fancy office, and so uh, they don't feel great there. And so our take-up of people going for retina screening for diabetic disease was less than 20%. And so now we have this cool thing in our office, a Samsung camera, uh, that uh, actually uh, we have a machine that it's hooked to. We have, they put their chin on the thing like you do when you go to the optometrists office and they have you open your eyes and it takes a picture. And that thing is taking a picture of their uh, of their retina. It's uploaded to the cloud and compared against 300,000 images of retinal disease and about 10 seconds later it comes back, has either no detectable retinal disease or more than minimal, diabetic retinopathy, and then those people we can send to the ophthalmologist's office. And this has actually been studied against ophthalmologists looking, and it's, it's non-inferior to that. So it's just one example of how artificial intelligence is helping people of low-income status. And this is going to start happening with things like breast ultrasound. In the developing world, I'm very excited about thermal imaging or breast ultrasounds that can be read by AI. That would be something that would be feasible to do. So keep your eyes open in the next 10 or 15, 20 years for artificial intelligence and how it's going to affect, affect cancer screening. But the other thing is, someone already mentioned here in the room, DNA screening uh, for, for tumor markers from either blood, urine, or stool. Uh, for And that's going to be an explosion, too. Unfortunately, most of those tests now are still really expensive. Uh, but uh, that's going to be coming, and that's something that could be easily cheap, sensitive, specific, and rolled out to big audiences. So keep your eye open for those being able to detect tumor DNA like PCR tests. Um, so we're excited, I think, in the future we're going to see an explosion of cancer screening. But the one thing I, I just want to remember about is that the number two cancer in the world is vaccine-preventable. And why most countries of the world do not have HPV vaccines as part of their country profile when it's one of the leading causes of cancer in the world still blows my mind. But. Uh, They're still expensive. In many countries, uh, they are not free, like other vaccines for for MMR and everything else. They cost, and they're expensive. So questions or input from people. First, I'll ask for input from people who are working in the developing world setting or have experience in the developing world setting. What challenges have you run across or what innovations have you seen for cancer screening in the developing world? Problems have you had? Problems you can envision. Okay. So when you walk out of here today, even if you're a high school student, I want you to think about a couple things. Cancer screening is complicated. It's way more than I'm going to go get a test, find a cancer, get it treated, go home. There's problems to that. We don't want to ever screen unless we can do something about what we find. Guidelines are constantly being updated. So whatever you learn in this class today, the stats I gave you, will be completely irrelevant five years from now. And so this is one of those things you can't learn once and learn for forever. You've got to learn it once and keep relearning it. Uh, And there are biases, both lead time bias, length time bias, but also there are socioeconomical biases, visceral biases of how we think about certain people. In countries, certain ethnic groups have access to care and others don't. And so that affects cancer screening. And we should be talking to our patients before we order tests on them. Um, so that's the end of my talk. Any questions or comments? I don't have my glasses on. That light's so bright. So I have 10 minutes. Great. Yeah. Right? That hand went up first. So it's not as good. Uh, But it's not that far off. So if any of you do clinical medicine, when we get an abnormal pap smear, what do we do next? We do colposcopy. And so with colposcopy, what we do is we look at the cervix first, we put vinegar on it, and we look at it through a colposcope. And so we're actually taking the second step, and then we do other things there too. We'll do biopsies of abnormal zones. But that actually is something that we do after someone has an abnormal pap smear. And so um, I don't know the exact numbers, I do know that in our country, I have looked at the stats. It does make more sense here to do Pap smears because it is a little bit better. Uh, but in the developing world setting where you don't have pathologists, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Was that fully answer your question? Did I? Okay. One of the things that you didn't mention is that all of these screening tests have a gray zone. You know, so there's a positive and a negative, but yep. I've never seen a screening test that didn't have a well-indeterminate could be positive. Correct. The gynecologists always complain to us that when we send them a the diagnosis of asymptomatic cells of indeterminates and, yeah. and ask us, they have no idea what to do with that, but they scare the patients. Yeah. Right? Because just like the mammogram exam, you, you gave. So, yeah. It's, I'm thinking that a better approach would be, like you said, to get the Gates Foundation to give us a lot of money to go vaccinate everybody. Yeah. I mean, it still blows my mind, right? I mean, it, it's a huge impact worldwide. And I tell you what, if you've ever worked, I mean, I can't tell you both my time in Liberia and my time in India, you know, women come in with vaginal bleeding, and you do a you know, a pelvic exam, and you just feel that tumor all the way down their vaginal sidewalls and this huge bulky tumor of their cervix, and you know there is nothing that's going to be done for this person now, and you just send them home. It is heartbreaking. You realize that is a vaccine-preventable illness, right? Yeah. Certain strains, but it's the strains that are the most likely to cause cancer. Strains that cause ninety five percent of the cervical cancer. Yeah. Yep. What are the for the like, um, like you know, we have the guidelines for the like, pathmary if it comes out is, like high grade, low grade. Yeah. Which we probably can't do in like what kind of guidelines do you go by in like a developing country? So in it in the village health workers in India who did this test for our health system, I mean, if, if they had any aceto white changes, uh, they would be sent to an OBGYN office and they would do like colposcopy, or they would just take a biopsy probe and look and find those areas that were turning white and just do cervical biopsies there. Or the other thing is is that in some countries where they don't have the ability to do pathology on those, anybody who has aceto white changes, they'll either do just a leap or a thermal ablation uh, or if you have some, I was amazed uh, when I did this talk yesterday, how many countries in Africa or places in Africa actually had um, liquid nitrogen. Uh, but, I mean, if you have liquid nitrogen, that's an easy thing to do. You just freeze the cervix with a cone, uh, and then you've basically just treated it without even fully knowing how, what the degree of pathology is. It's a blunt thing, but it's better than nothing, and it's been shown to save lives. So. All right. Any other questions? Well, thank you in your postprandial state for enduring a very boring talk on cancer at 1 o'clock. It was uh, uh, great uh, being with you guys. And i am to be hanging around up here if anyone has a question that they didn't want to say in front of everybody, because there's always a few of those. All right, I hope that this conference is a blessing to you. And this conference is way more than cancer screening, right? And, uh, and uh, just very prayerful for all of you who are in attendance, no matter why you're here, that God will continue to work in your hearts and minds and lives. Uh, to help lead and direct and guide you to where he wants you to be uh, with the right mentality of that work. All right. Blessings on everybody.